This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and all of our podcasts at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, sports, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we have a fantastic show planned for you tonight. It's the first night after the daylight savings time, so it's a little dark out there. If you're stuck in traffic, you need to stay tuned. We have Malcolm Nance. He is an MSNBC contributor and here to speak with us for the entire hour about his upcoming appearance at the Miami Book Fair, which is happening November 12th through the 19th at Miami-Dade's Wolfson Campus in the middle of downtown Miami. And Mr. Nance will be appearing Sunday, November 19th at 4.30 p.m. in the One Building Auditorium, second floor. Uh, You're sure to want to go see this if you care about... Electoral politics in the United States, Mr. Nance is the guy to speak with uh, when it comes to his book, The Plot to Hack America, How Putin's Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks Tried to Steal the 2016 Election, which actually was published last September. So stay tuned. We have a fantastic show. But tonight I'd like to speak with you for just a brief moment about issues of importance that impact us citywide and sometimes beyond but tonight i'm talking about elections your local elections are tomorrow so if you haven't voted yet if you haven't mailed in your ballot or voted early tomorrow is your chance to vote that is everybody in the city of miami that's right every resident of the city of miami all five hundred thousand plus of you there is a bond initiative that is on the ballot and also there's a mayoral race francis suarez is the sole candidate but you can still vote for him But the bond issue is a very important question. It's uh, called the Go Bonds. It's a $400 million issue. Uh, It's supported by Mayor Regalado, uh, by Ken Russell, who's the the District 2 Commissioner. Um, You know, you got to definitely make a decision no matter where you live in the city, even if you don't have a contested commission race and there's no contested mayor's race to vote for. Again, Miami Beach has a very important election coming up tomorrow. There are two very important uh, ballot questions. One is the Ocean Drive referendum. Uh, there are certain people who want to shut Ocean Drive down at 2 a.m., which would probably be a death knell to the neighborhood. And there's also a question about development in North Beach. There's a plan, and even the preservationists seem to support it. And as well, there's two contested city uh, commission races and the mayor's race. There's four ba- uh, people on the mayor's race ballot in Miami Beach. And each of the two city commission races that are contested are citywide. One pits Michael Gongora versus Adrian Gonzalez. The other pits uh, Mark Simulian versus Rafael uh, Velasquez. And I'll just say on the two races um, that there's one candidate who unfortunately has been accused by multiple women of sexual assault. I'm talking about Mr. Velasquez. And we just cannot recommend that you vote for him because of these accusations, they're very serious. Uh, he said that he wants 
to let the voters decide. And uh, we just have to say, you know, as voters, you should not decide to vote for somebody accused of those serious, serious offenses against three different women uh, during the course of this election. Now, while that said, there's also Homestead votes. Uh, there's several other cities that are voting tomorrow. So keep your eyes open. Uh, you know, if you're in an un unincorporated Miami-Dade area, you may not have anything to vote for. But for the million-plus residents in the 30-plus municipalities in Miami, uh, this is the time to at least grab a copy of the Herald, see who they recommend. Uh, there's also, uh, in the city of Miami, two commission races ongoing, a District 3 and District 4. District 4 features a race between uh, Manolo Reyes and Ralph Rosado, uh, both very qualified candidates. And uh, District 3 uh, is the legacy race. Uh, Frank Carroyo, who is the current occupant, has been termed out. His brother, Joe Carroyo, is running, the former mayor and former city uh, commissioner. Uh, there is, uh, you know, one of uh, County Commissioner Barrero's relatives is running. Mayor Thomas Regalado's son is running for this seat. And six other candidates. Uh, I recommend Jose Suarez. Um, again, if you live in one of Miami's municipalities, Make sure you don't miss voting tomorrow. It is only one day. That's it. Tomorrow, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. is your opportunity to vote in these very important local elections. But tonight, we have an incredible guest. He's going to be on with us just after this break, which is starting almost right now. It's Malcolm Nance, and he will be discussing his Miami Book Fair appearance on Sunday, November 19th at 4.30 p.m. in Auditorium Building 1, second floor, room 1261, in downtown Miami's Wolfson campus of Miami-Dade College. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Miami show and I'm your host Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with special guest Malcolm Nance. He is an MSNBC contributor and author of the book The Plot to Hack America. He will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair this Sunday, November 19th at 4.30 p.m. in the auditorium, building one second floor. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. 
you to be here. So let's talk about the book because, uh, you know, I think that people have seen you on MSNBC, but they may not realize that you put this book out before last year's election. When did you start working on the book, The Plot to Hack America? I actually started work on the book the very night that, uh, which I think it was July 25th, which was the date that I came on. And uh, I think I may have been the first one in the media to to go on national television and say that the United States uh, was attacked by Russia and that the nature of that attack was a cyber warfare, political warfare attack, which was designed to break the Democratic Party in two on the first morning of the Democratic National Committee convention. And, uh, you know, when I made that announcement, it was actually after a couple of days of lobbying, because uh, I clearly saw that this was a, a very old school Russian intelligence style operation, just supercharged with cyber warfare and computer technology. Uh, it was pretty standard. And, uh, you know, finally that that morning I was on with Joy Reid and they said, uh, yeah, go ahead. You can you can you can tell us what you told you tell the country what you told us. And I I sat down. I said the United States was attacked in a cyber warfare operation designed to break the Democratic Party. Uh, and it and it technically did. It excited. I, I think it worked. Uh, yeah, it, it, it did work. And more importantly, it got the news media focused only on one word. And that was emails. Oh, and yes. so that very afternoon when I, when I finished, I, I sat down, I went home, and I, I outlined what I thought that operation, you know, how it would have looked from beginning to end. And I just didn't stop writing for five weeks. And I, I delivered the manuscript on September 2nd of 2016. And it, it was crashed publication. And then uh, it came out online on September 23rd. The exact same day that President Obama received the CIA's version of the exact same report, which we've attached at the back. And my report is identical to theirs in terms of scope, objectives and activities. Uh, it's just that, I, you know, my 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 Russian operation was codenamed Lucky Seven and theirs was Grizzly Step. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty amazing, because on July 25th, um, I wrote something in Occupy Democrats called It's Official. Trump has teamed up with Putin to defeat Hillary. Right. Yeah. So well, there was a lot of noise. Th there was uh, a lot of noise. Air, uh, in, in the media. Uh, but no one really wanted to come forward and, and take that step. Uh, certainly not in the broadcast or radio media. You know, in print, there had been a couple of articles. But I had been tracking this since March of, of 2016. I was writing another book called Hacking ISIS, which came out this year. And that's when we, you know, I saw that the cyber warfare entities, they're not really entities, they're actually malware packages called right. ATP-28 and ATP-29, Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, were involved, with, you know, in numerous other operations around the world, and including two which were false flag attacks claiming that they were ISIS. And that's how they came to my attention. And, and then I learned early on that, that uh that um, one of the major cybersecurity companies was reporting that they both were found inside the DNC server. So, it, you know, very, very quickly for me, you know, I realized that the Russians were inside and doing what they had done to Estonia, the Ukraine, Latvia, Germany, uh, and, you know, and many other countries. 
So, you know, one of the funny things about what happened in July is that Donald Trump actually told the truth and the news media didn't believe it. And that two was days later. Right. Two days later, two days later, he said, uh, yeah, he said, if if, uh, you know, please, uh, Russia, if you're listening, uh, please find the 30,000 emails. And then he said, I think you will probably be rewarded mightily Greatly rewarded. by our press. That's right. But they didn't believe it, that. <laughs> no. And I, I was actually on air, air all week discussing that. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I have to give her props. But the journalist who was most attuned to that uh, was Joy Reid at MSNBC. Uh, and, and, you know, when I told her that Monday by the by, you know, I was on practically every day. And then the following Saturday, I was on her Saturday program every week up into the election. Uh, and, and she was pretty convinced that this was a major operation. And the evidence started to pile up rather rapidly. Oh, sure. But, you know, Trump was right. And you'll recall that. What I one of the things that I wrote in the book was what was the genesis of that statement? Where did he get that information that got him to believe that there were thirty thousand emails that Russia had actually hacked out of her computer? And now you know. Today, in hindsight, in hindsight, there's quite a few places where he might have come up with that idea, all within his campaign well, or very close to his well, campaign. Well, in in hindsight, that's true. Yes. Uh, however, right now, only this last week has, have journalists actually started to deep dive down into that question. Sure. And I answered that question in, I say, think, chapter three of my book. Uh, there was a, a very obscure website called, um, uh, uh, the, the name escapes me right now. Come to me in a minute. I'm having sure. a senior moment. Sure, it's okay. But, um, uh, but this very obscure website, which was run by an individual blogger who was writing under the pseudonym of Sorcha Fowl. And supposedly Sorcha Fowl, this female writer, was getting all of these scoops that seemed to reflect many conspiracy theories and activities in Russian media. And then they were repeated by Russian media as soon as he would write. WhatDoesItMean.com was the name of the website. It's still active. And, you know, this, there was this whole media world swirl at a very low level about who is Sorcha Fall. You know, there were people trying to figure out who this character was, not because of any connection to Russia, but because of all the crazy conspiracy theories that he was putting out. Okay. And so... This website in early, I want to say, uh, in early March, put out that very report that Putin was having a debate at the highest levels of the Kremlin, the foreign minister, the director of the FSB, Russian intelligence, about whether he should release the 20,000, they said 20,000, emails that they had taken from Hillary Clinton. And it would have been, you know, a nothing burger. Except that in April, after the DNC hack was revealed, and it was only revealed amongst, you know, cybersecurity professionals. And uh, by mid-April, Judge uh, Napolitano, the Fox News commentator, repeated that exact report 
that there was a debate going on inside the highest levels of the Kremlin uh, and that inside Putin's, you know, Putin's office, they had Hillary Clinton's 20,000 emails and they're debating whether they should release them. And I actually went on MSNBC on Hardball, I believe, and, and we were discussing that comment. And I said, this is what we call Cardinal of the Kremlin stuff, right? This is I read that book. the most highly classified information in the history of America, right? What you you have someone inside Putin's office that's discuss, hearing what he's discussing, which is impossible. Okay, so I said that's just straight disinformation, and so that manifested itself in Trump's Russia. If you're listening, comment. It was never heard from again until Trump said that he had kicked it up to 30,000 emails. Right. And um, and and it took off from there. But we see this full circle where the Russians introduced it. It goes out on some obscure website. It's picked up by Fox News. It's magnified. And you know that by the time it reached Trump on July 27th, people had been speaking about it internally. Now we're finding multiple people. We're out looking for these emails and where these email emails were being dangled in front of them by Russian intelligence. That's right. Uh, you know, George Papadopoulos, uh, yes. Donald Trump Jr., along with Manafort, Kushner, uh, yeah, yeah, we have Peter W. Smith and Flynn. Right. Did I leave anybody out? <laughs> well, I think we're going to find out that, the, you know, I've, I've said this for some time. There are multiple teams that were out there hawking and selling. And the Russians were there and available and putting it out across the board in the Republican Party, trying to get them to bite. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if the genesis was way earlier than the Papandopoulos email. I, you know, Vladimir Putin had to make a decision to attack the United States. And I don't use the word meddle. I like the word attack, because this is a full-scale intelligence operation against the United States, which involved hundreds. And now I'm starting to wonder if it's not actually in the low thousands. I'm starting um, to think it's more in the mid thousands or even low five figure well, numbers. You include the so Internet many. Research Agency, right. right? Their troll farm. There may have been more than that. But I my count, you know, on the basis of my experience on operations of this size, the intelligence and foreign ministry staff would have been about oh, 300 yeah. to 350. Yeah. And yeah. that's a very big operation when you talk intelligence. The, right. And they would just be the management team, what I call the information warfare management cell, of these subcontractors who were the troll farms, the Internet Research Agency, uh, you know, the Alinka trolls. Let's do this. We're going to take a very short break. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and all of our stream at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we're back live with Malcolm Nance. He's an MSNBC contributor and an author who will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair on Sunday, November 19th at 4.30 p.m., at Miami-Dade Wolfson Campus downtown in the auditorium. It's building one second floor at 4.30 p.m. Sunday, November 19th. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It's my pleasure. So let's talk about what one of the things you mentioned, one of the many things you mentioned in the last segment, which is the dangle. Um, you know, that's kind of what we see as the recurring theme, that uh, there was offers made of these 30,000 emails of Hillary Clinton's, yet some very different emails were instead released. How do those two things correlate with each other? Well, as, as we said, this was an intelligence operation. And as, as part of an intelligence uh, staff or a management team, one of the things that you're going to sit down and evaluate the, 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 the needs of your operation versus the information sphere that exists in your enemy's, you know, political world. So if you look at the United States, there was the only thing that was outstanding, the only real vulnerability of Hillary Clinton was the very fact that her emails were made into this enormous scandal, which if you look at the emails and the things that she had released proper, Dull as dishwater. I mean, there really wasn't anything. So to think that the, you know, the Internet practices of a 67-year-old woman was the one thing that was consuming the Republican Party, an opposition intelligence agency and their, you know, their political warfare staffs would look at that and would say, okay, we need to slingshot that message to where it maintains continuity and strength completely across the board. And now you have to remember, the Russians hacked the Democratic National Committee servers starting in early summer of 2015. That's right. That decision was being made at the height of the, of the Benghazi scandals, and the Russians were, must have been watching it extremely closely. And they realized, this is this woman's vulnerability. We can take whatever the Republicans say and magnify it to an order of magnitude, and the American press, which is relatively lazy, will eat up whatever we say. And so what they've done was they've weaponized the American news media to turn it into a weapon against, you know, elect, you know America's uh, electoral system, which had, you know, performed almost flawlessly for 240 years. And it worked. It certainly worked. And there was other... Um, there were other operations going on. There was one that I wrote about on October 20th of last year, um, which involved uh, RT, uh, the Russia Today website, and 
they were basically claiming that they were not being allowed to monitor the polls uh, for our election. Did you did you catch that one? Yeah, it, it, you're, yes, I had during the time. And as a matter of fact, you know, Russia has two completely different set of objectives that go on when they do political warfare. And for those who are, you know, of a certain age, people who are above, you know, maybe 45, 50 years old, they'll remember the KGB, you know, the Russian intelligence agency, James Bond villain evil. I mean, really were. Yeah. And they were for 70 years. Their job was to exploit people and nations. And one of the things that they did relentlessly for that 70 years and 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 poorly was to say that the United States and and democratic, you know, its democratic processes and Jeffersonian democracy were a failure. And and, you know, it was laughable when you compared it to the Soviet Union. But Russia became a fledgling democracy in the early 1990s. And by 2000, it had transitioned to an autocracy under Putin. And they liked it. And they, you know, they happily went along with it, you know, because some countries require strong men and dictators. But Russian intelligence never left off on the objective of discrediting American democracy. And by using these instruments of, of media from Russia, which they never had before, right? Their, their media was a professional propagandist organization. They would use things like their, their news media isn't allowed to go to the electoral polls to claim that American democracy is actually corrupt. And Donald Trump is saying the entire thing is rigged against him. So he worked clearly for, for their political goals or within that, because they knew he would, right? He, they knew his character. This is a guy that they had, Soviet Union had been monitoring since 1998 when he reached out to them to build hotels there. And then in 2013, he comes to Russia with an unsecure telephone. So now they know everything about him and would have kept him as an intelligence collection target right up to the, the minute he got into the Oval Office, if not after, since he still does it have a secure telephone. Well, let's talk about the 2013 trip that Donald Trump took to Russia. He he hosted right. Miss Universe there. And while he was there, he announced a Trump Tower project with Aras Aglarov, who is the right. Kremlin-linked Kremlin oligarch whose son's agent set up the infamous meeting um, last June. The funny right. thing is, is that they never announced that that project was going to be canceled until after the inauguration. Yet last year, or actually this summer, uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, released a letter of intent that was from a right. completely different Trump Tower project. So, in fact, something that hasn't been really widely reported, but that I noticed, is that there's two, actually two Trump Tower Moscow projects completely independent of each other that have both right. been reported. Um, one of them I reported on, the, the Aguilarov one. I, I mean, have you noticed that? Do you have some reflections on that? Well, you know, everything is dissembling, right? Donald Trump is a master of keeping uh, out, of the out, out of the media sphere until he wants it there. And, you know, when those questions came up, do you have any projects there? It's easy to, to, to wiggle out of one while you're doing another. Um, and when the Cohen email came out, which was uh, which was November 
2019. That tower, which was a multi, is a multi-building tower, was a spa named Ivanka Spa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, the Ivanka Spa. You know, and at the same time, admitting Russia will come in both feet to help you in this election, and we will get you elected president. And the reason I don't think that it got a lot of breathing room is because I think a lot of people quickly saw how serious that report was and that it would become an enormous central focus of the Mueller investigation. And it's almost like, you know, um, uh, let me put it in military terms, Uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, you see a concentration of enemy. Okay. you, you, You just ignore it. Because you know B-52s and cruise missiles and bombs are about to just rain down on that point. So, you know, why pay attention? You know, why bother yourself to it other than noticing it? Because there's no way that is going to exist in a short period of time. And I think that the, the Trump Tower memoranda with Michael Cohen is, you know, that's his ticket to jail or it's his ticket to immunity. In, in this in this case, because as they build the case up, people are going to have to talk. And if they don't talk, well, I think Bob Mueller is going to make it eminently clear that he has a nice supermax prison to send them to. <laughs> well, let's talk about Michael Cohen. He's uh, Trump's personal lawyer who himself right. has lawyered up. Um, it's oh. always a bad sign when lawyers are hiring lawyers for themselves. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I think he's got a, a great case example because the first thing that happened, nobody really was considering Michael Cohen and Russia until the, the Christopher Steele dossier was released in right. January. And when that happened, um, he gave an exclusive interview to Yahoo and Yahoo News published the report uh, called Trump attorney Michael Cohen. I have no Russian Kremlin connections. Right. Now, that was January 10th. <laughs> Then um, on June 9th of this year, I published a story called Busted. Uh, Trump's loyal lawyer, Michael Cohen, lied. He does have Russian Kremlin contacts. And as you know, the Trump organization is notorious for, you know, sending out threat letters, threatening to sue anybody that publishes anything negative about them. And Michael Cohen responded to my story by blocking me on Twitter. <laughs> That, that's all he did. He just blocked me on Twitter. I didn't tag him. I didn't bother him. Um, but it's like, you know, he put out the blanket alibi. And then six months later, we got visual proof. No, this guy actually has some Kremlin contacts and there's no denying it. Um, so, I mean, it, this is a pattern that I've seen. Is this something that you've seen where you like when you have the blanket alibi that's actually like shouting, hey, there's something to see here. There's something to see. here. I'm denying everything. How does this factor into like how you break down people's statements versus what the research that you see indicates? Well, look, the intent behind many people, it's interesting because I just spoke about this on Hardball, uh, which, which was broadcast about 30 minutes ago, um, that what we have here is we have an enormous pool of people who have some clear financial tie. Russia, and I say financial tie because there is no other reason to explain why these people would lie 
very early on, very often to the media and everyone else who would hear them, including Jeff Sessions. I mean, you know, well, about every time he met a Russian, every time he talked about something. You know, we're talking about a country that is not rich. It's a very poor, it's a relatively poor country. Russia has the gross domestic product of India, and uh, you know, and, and or the gross uh, national monthly salary of India on average, and the gross domestic product of Italy. France has two times the gross production of, of Russia. But there is this class of less than one percenters, the oligarchy, that own everything in Russia, everything. And they have raw access to oil and money. And well, oil is money. Appears, right. Oil is money. And it, it appears at some point there has to be there, there. You can see this is an intelligence inflection, right? This is where I can see there's a data point that must be there. And we just haven't uncovered it yet. And, you know, and, and that has to be that someone talked to a group of people about how they could be rewarded. And they are all thinking beyond working in the government of the United States. They're thinking working for themselves in four years. And as the Christopher Steele memo said, um, the commission on raising the Exxon deal, on raising sanctions, was a 4.5% commission or $19 billion on a half a trillion dollar deal which Trump seems hell-bent on working all the angles to get it done. So this would be an incredible motivator for anybody. Uh, it's like that old line from the movie Way of the Gun, or where James Kahn is talking to the young hero, and they, he comes to collect $5 million, and Kahn says, the guy says, I want my money. James Kahn says, $5 million? That's not money. That's a motive. <laughs> so, yeah. $19 billion? That's not money. The problem is, is that the Steele Memorandum, the Steele Dossier, as people like to call it, is being validated every day, either in dead bodies by the Russians or things like the Michael Cohen email, which stated that, you know, you know this is what he had said. This is what he had promised. Well, you know what? Going with that, let's talk about Oleg Avronkin, the former head of the KGB. Uh, right. who was found, uh, he had a heart attack, um, and it was reported a month later. Right. Uh, yeah. He, he's Igor Session, uh, who is the CEO of Rosneft. He's, uh, he's, he's the right-hand man to Session, and uh, right. people thought that he was a source of the Steele dossier. Well, you know, that was one of the first ones that I, that I commented publicly. I, and I, I had seen the Steele dossier well before it came out on uh, with BuzzFeed. And some of the sourcing was so precise that you could figure out who the source was, right? And okay. generally within the intelligence analysis, you don't want to do that, right? You want to give clean names. But for this to be valid amongst a client, you would really have to drop those hints to say, this guy is good. If Ronkin, he, he, he wasn't a director of the KGB, but he was a former general in both the KGB and then the FSB. And he became the chief of staff to Igor Sechin, uh, who was the owner of Rosneft, Russian, uh, Russia's largest oil company. And in the Steele Memorandum, it said that the source 
um, for that report, for the Rusneft oil deal with Exxon and lifting the sanctions and the $19 billion, was a person who was immediately close to Sechin. Now, the only person who's immediately close to that guy is his chief of staff, right? Okay. Who would actually know the details. Of yeah, yeah. I mean, he's somebody that's and, carrying out the orders. Yeah, well, you know, he woke up, you know, he woke up with two bullets in his head in the back of his car. Uh, you know, he was young. <laughs> he's 61 years old. He dies of lead poisoning. And uh, initially, they were saying that he died of a heart attack. And there was no, you know, there was no uh, assassination. There was no murder. But, but since that time, the reports that are coming out of Russia was, like all the rest, you know, the other 27 diplomats and, and others who were dying of heart attacks, there's a way to induce that. And generally, it's from lead poisoning to the back of the head. So, but his death, I, I'm pretty sure, I, I, would, I think I might even have been on Rachel Maddow, where I said his death is validation. I was Lawrence O'Donnell. That this man dying validates that point on the Steele Memorandum. They validated it in blood. Well, you know, judging by the timeline of events with the Steele Memo, uh, you know, the, the Obama administration said uh, they were sending something to Russia in October that maybe the public wouldn't notice, but they certainly would. Uh, then there was the initial report by Mother Jones uh, on Halloween of last year, about a week, right. uh, just over a week before the election. And then all of a sudden, a lot of Russian ambassadors suddenly had heart problems all over the world. Uh, or, or, you know, being assassinated publicly or whatnot. Um, and then Mr. Ivronkin, that happened at the end of December. Um, so, I mean, my question for you is, do you think that uh, a version of this dossier was shared with the other side just to kind of say, hey, look who your mole is, because these people are important. Or maybe even um, that's not really who, you know, like the dossier was released, but maybe that's not necessarily who the source was. I mean, do you well, think this was a, you know, uh, what they call a barium meal test or a canary trap where, you know, this was sent out to see what the reaction would be? No, I, I don't think so. And, I, you know, Putin's, Putin from time to time has behaved badly by killing, uh, killing opponents, uh, poisoning his opponents with the most, le you know, the slowest burning and most expensive poison in the history of mankind, right? Using polonium yeah, from yeah. a power, from a nuclear, from a, an atomic reactor that only creates plutonium for nuclear bombs, right? Right. <laughs> this is a byproduct. You know, so you got to have a billion dollars to make that poison. But what I think is, is that, you know, I think the Steele Memorandum came out and was a surprise to them in the level of its detail. And I think, uh, and I, I, I've said this pretty clearly on, 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 on Chris Matthews, that the operation that used to be performed in the 1940s through the end of the Cold War was called Smersh. And Smersh was Russian acronym for death to spies. And they're most famous in James Bond for, you know, from Russia with love. You know, this group that goes around and kills spies. Wow. And I think Putin, as an old school KGB guy, was going, this report, you know, to intelligence professionals like myself, that dossier looks good. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> it's what we call rumor intelligence. But 
pretty solid rumor intelligence, even though some of this stuff are clearly just, you know, anecdotes like well, the, the know, tape. A lot of it is actually straight from Reuters and Bloomberg. I mean, there's yeah. business news that flies under the radar of the, the mass media, but it's out there. It's written in English. I mean. Right. And, you know, what he did was he probably took down, ran down those reports with individuals. But that's how you do, you know, human intelligence. That's how you validate, you know, rumor intelligence that you get off the cocktail circuit. You go down, you could get a report, but running down that report to its source or to a very viable source that would know the origins of that rumor intelligence, that turns it into viable intelligence. And then from there, we'd go from rumor to, you know, to getting a classification. Enough that the FBI trusted, you know, Christopher Steele. So it, it doesn't matter. But the Russians took it very personally. <laughs> I mean, their counterintelligence people must have clearly seen who the individuals were and I really do believe that they did start a campaign, uh, the kind that Putin would order as director of the KGB. He would just go, let's smirch these guys. Death, they're spies. They're betraying the nation. Uh, like the head of the cybersecurity unit that was, mar- you know, that was taken down by a, you know. A, With the a, black bag. A, yeah. Right. The black bag in the middle of a meeting. And, you know, he's going to, eventually he's going to end up in a furnace, which <sighs> is what the Russians still do. When they find people they believe are guilty of treason, they throw them in a firmness live. And, Oof. oh, by the way, and they have his staff in his office carry him hand over hand just wow. to remind them that, you know, this is what happens to, to traitors. So I think Putin is, is definitely on that. And, I mean, this is a guy who literally went after American democracy. Do you think killing a few people in a dossier is going to matter to him? Not at all. Let's do this, Malcolm. We're going to take a very short break, and we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. We were royalty. She even said it's staring in the face of poverty. Is that insanity or vanity? I think it's nothing but the power of the mind. Believe she put it in me because I live on my dreams. I give my fantasies wings. One day I'm gonna be king. I'm gonna make that woman so proud of her son. I know you heard about change. It's gonna come. One question Will you be there? Will you be there? I'll be there with my hands held high in the air like a champion. Cause I demand the win. back this is the only in miami show and i'm your host grant stern you can find me on twitter at grant stern and all of our podcasts at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com music news politics and more check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com and we are back live with malcolm nance he's appearing at the miami book fair which is coming up 
Uh, it's the 12th through the 19th of November, and he will be appearing live Sunday, November 19th at 4.30 p.m. at the Auditorium Building 1, second floor in Miami-Dade uh, Miami College's downtown Wolfson campus. Malcolm, again, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It's my pleasure. So I'd like to read a quote to you from a, a Russian professor. This is a quote that was given last October, early last October. And I had it translated. Um, you know, it's a short quote. And I want to get your, your feedback on it. Because when I found it in December of this past year or last year, uh, I, you know, I really like it shocked me. Um, didn't get a lot of reads, but it's an interesting quote. Can you imagine that the Russian Security Council decreed to support Donald Trump with hacking attacks, the expert said. And this was in Commerscent, by the way. I cannot. For that to happen, Trump needs to be a real Russian agent, and there is no data to support that. That is from Professor Andrei Shushentov. He is a MGIMO professor and uh, the head of the Valdai Discussion Club, which is a very, you know, it's a Putin-linked think tank. He actually goes there every year. Um, what do you make of, of what he said last October before the election? Um, well, you know, <laughs> it was pretty big in Russia, even though the U.S. news media was looking at it sort of tangentially through the lens of, of the promise of the emails and the Podesta leaks right. that were going on out there. But, you know, we, I know personally that they were paying very close attention uh, to MSNBC's reporting because, uh, you know, there was let's just say that we were we were getting a lot more bots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who were attacking our Twitter feeds by the thousands. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I think that his assertion that Trump would have to be an agent of Russia is a clever play on words, because, in fact, he doesn't have to be an agent. Um, I've been saying, I, I believe that very week, that Donald Trump was an unwitting asset of Russian intelligence. Right. And, and, and I said that for about, Two days from the 25th to the 27th of July. And the minute Trump came out with that Russia, if you're listening statement, I also said quite publicly that he clearly is now aware that there was an effort to assist him. Right. And that statement was a statement of arrogance. And, it, you know, an, an arrogance in the sense that he was very aware now they were working for him. And he was actually calling on them to to assist him further, uh, you know, and 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 and, and break Seemed the election. Pretty but, overt to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but that doesn't mean that he's you know a cognizant agent, right? And there's there's different categories of personnel who are working in an intelligence or for an intelligence apparatus. Well, well I mean, doesn't and, this know, doesn't this kind of place him in the p position of? thinking that they were being his agents, but in fact he was operating as their agent. De facto, I'm not necessarily saying right. he knew and, he was and, taking well, the orders. the word is really asset. Yeah. <laughs> and a technical term for someone who is doing your bidding, you know, sort of, you know, if, if it's an unwitting asset, then, you know, in the old days we used to call them useful idiots. But there's some question as to whether Trump actually was unwitting. And it's just a question now that the Mueller investigation is going to find out about. 
is just how witting or unwitting was he? That that is a huge question to be answered. It is. Let's talk and about. Answered, and I don't think they're going to like the answer, but there's a lot of evidence out there that he was much more witting much earlier, and many of these dirty tricks teams had briefed him. Oh, I, I don't doubt it. I mean, we're talking about someone whose longest political association is Roger Stone. Um, right. Uh, Mr. Dirty Tricks himself. Mr. Dirty Tricks himself. In fact, um, uh, you know, I don't want to go off on Stone for a second. I want to go back to Carter Page here. Uh, there was a big report <laughs> that came out on Friday. Um, now, on Monday of last week, I wrote a story. Carter Page met the Russian politician behind the Uranium One deal during the Trump campaign, who happens to be a gentleman named Arkady Dvorkovich. He's one of two deputy prime ministers to Putin. Um, I wrote that last Monday, and on Friday, the New, the New, uh, New York Times came out with a story that had none of that actual information, but it did say that it, they, he had met with somebody very important from the Kremlin, and their addition to the story is that he had actually sent email updates back to the campaign. <laughs> right. So what do you think the importance of meeting someone like Dvorkovich could be in the context of the broader scheme? And we've got about five minutes left here. Okay. I'll keep it short. Well, you, for those who watch MSNBC, you, you'll recall is that I was the analyst that was on Chris Hayes after the first interview with Carter Page. And the first, one of the first things I said was, I was so stunned at this individual. This supposedly it was, was a stunning Naval interview. Academy graduate. Yeah. I'm sorry? It was a stunning interview with Chris Hayes. I totally agree. Yeah, and this is supposedly a Naval Academy graduate, um, a Marine intelligence officer who had served as a reservist in North Africa, and, and it later came out that he was involved in an activity where Russia was trying to recruit him. Right, the Vinesh Ekonom Bank uh, prosecution. And, 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 you know, and Naveed Jamali, who was an FBI double agent uh, with the Russians uh, before, said, you know, there's, there's just something wrong with this guy. And I, and I said <laughs> quite famously to Chris Hayes, I hope he's the hero in this story, because if he's not a double agent and hasn't been flipped by the FBI, maybe everything he did was designed to assist the Russians, because he seems to really love Russia. The, you know, that he does. I've watched his, his speeches. And the way he behaves is as if he has a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, he <laughs> left He left a, a congressional hearing smiling, wearing a goofy hat uh, just last okay. week. I mean... Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, the Russians, you know, Russian intelligence said that he was unreliable and that they believed that he was, you know, was, you know, an unbalanced, I believe was the word, or something <laughs> like that. And he would be the perfect dangle. No one can act like that. I've seen this guy now, one degree of separation. Whatever he is, he is. And I just find it fascinating that somehow he's managed to get himself in these circumstance where in, in this circumstance where he seems to think he's going to walk out of this cleanly if he is guilty of something. Well, let's but talk about spycraft really for a second. Just the, yeah. the, just the very fact of him meeting with one of these high-level officials does mean that information could have been passed in person, like avoiding detection and interception. Isn't that right? Absolutely. 
And, you know, I really, my initial thought was is that he and, or, 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 or Papadopoulos was one of the characters in direct and repeated communication with Russian intelligence that initiated the first FISA warrant in June of 2016. And that they just confronted him and flipped him and <laughs> just said, look, dude, we know what you're doing. You're going to go to jail for the rest of your life. But you could work for us and, you know, and, and further develop this story. Well, it remains to be seen. Right. And then speaking of George Papadopoulos, um, I also wrote an article about him this past week where we did the thing that, you know, and this was one that I, I worked on with Scott Dworkin, the thing that the American media really doesn't like to do, which is like searching foreign language reports instead of just looking for the right. English language stuff. And it turned out that this Trump advisor had met very secretly, very quietly with the president of Greece and with several other conservative party members um, last mm-hmm. May. And there's new reporting coming out that that meeting happened right around the same time that those same people were meeting with Vladimir Putin in Greece. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're trying to denigrate him. But do you think that Papadopoulos' story is going to keep expanding? Or do you think that we're kind of like at the maximum Papadopoulos here? We got a minute left. I don't know. I think that I think that Papadopoulos' story is just one of perhaps several that will be identical. And that he's just one finger of many of, of many activities that, you know, that in the pie of Donald Trump and his campaign. And I think I don't know if it's been played out, but this guy was arrested last July. Right. There's a lot more intrigue inside there. He might have, you know, called up some of his old friends during the last three months uh, just to ask them what their recollections were and, and could have been part of a FBI sting operation. I don't know. Now, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with The Prisoner's Dilemma, which came from a Rand Corporation report. And if you're out there listening, The Prisoner's Dilemma, just look it up after the show. Uh, do you think that we're seeing everybody snitching on everybody here? Is that what we're actually seeing? Everybody quietly positioning themselves to not be the guy, like trying to deflect that it's them? Or do you think that we're seeing maybe just Papadopoulos and everybody else is trying to protect themselves? What, what do you think is going on with that? I think what you're seeing is... It- <laughs> I think what you're really seeing is you're seeing to use a to use a um, Neil deGrasse Tyson term, you know, or, or analogy is you're seeing the effect of what a black hole that the Mueller investigation is. <laughs> Everything is being pulled against it. You know, you, for true. some strange reason, these planets are wobbling out of alignment, and the only explanation there's nothing out there has got to be the unseen pull of an irresistible force that will eat and destroy all worlds. And I think they don't, many people don't know what's happening to them. Donald Trump is the biggest. He has no clue that this is not some low-level assistant district attorney from southern New York uh, that works for the city. Well, Malcolm, I, I so appreciate you coming on the program. But that's all the time we have left for tonight's program. Uh, can you give out to our audience a website or your Twitter handle so they can take the conversation online? Sure. They can go on Twitter at, at Malcolm Nance, M-A-L-C-O-L-M-N-A-N-C-E, and uh, join the debate there. And we'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.